Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hit the Light Podcast with me, Big Frog. This week, I'm going solo on the much-anticipated and highly-teased Randy Rhodes episode. Um, I'm doing this one because, obviously, Randy's my favorite guitarist of all time. I've said that a million times. And since we just got done with the guitar solo episode and I've got guitars on the mind, now would be the perfect time to do it. I've been putting it off because, um, I mean, I know the whole Randy story backwards and forwards. I know Randy's music backwards and forwards. Technically, it's easy to do an episode like this one, but... The reason that Randy is my favorite guitarist in the first place is because his music hit me on an emotional level right when it came out. And obviously, even more so after he died. So, that the whole Randy thing and the whole Randy's music and talking about Randy and all that shit really kind of strikes a nerve with me. So, um... And I found that to be true when I was doing the uh, solo analysis. Later on in the episode, there's solo analysis part that I already did and that I will splice in later. And in doing that, you know, I I got fucking like, you know, a little bit emotional, man. I mean, it's it's weird to talk about that way, you know, about a dude that I never met, that I never knew, that I never even got to see play live, but for some reason affects me, you know. And that is why he is my favorite. And, um, and you know, everybody's got their own opinion. You know, uh, some people like Hendrix. Some people like Jimmy Page. Some people like Eddie Van Halen, Ingve, whoever. Uh, Carlos Santana. You know, um, and that's cool, man. All those dudes are great. You know, uh, sometimes I get odd look when I, when I say, you know, Randy is the greatest of all time for me because they'll say, you know, well, he only made two albums or, you know, whatever. Yeah, he only made two albums, but those two albums were fucking Diary of a Madman and fucking Blizzard of Oz, two of the greatest metal albums of all time. Saying Randy Rhodes only made two albums is like saying Eddie Murphy only made two comedy specials. True, but they were fucking delirious and fucking raw. So, yeah. Uh, it's okay that there was only two, you know. Um, but whenever you play music or, or do comedy for that matter, you're opening yourself up to a million criticisms, you know. And uh, people always have criticisms of great guitarists, you know. Mostly haters have these opinions, but, you know, it's always been that way. You know, you could say of Ingve that he doesn't play with any feeling. You could say of Eddie that all he does is a bunch of tricks. You could say of Jimmy Page plays too slow. You could say Hendrix was sloppy. You could say Iomi can't solo. You could say uh, Carlos Santana was too simple. You could say all kinds of shit. 
But none of those things can be said about Rhodes. No, his shit wasn't too simple. Yes, he could fucking solo. Not only was he not sloppy, he was clean as fuck. Was he too slow? Fuck no. Was all he did tricks? Of course not. And could he play with feeling? Fuck yeah. Not only did he play with fucking feeling, he played with fucking passion. So all of the arguments that um, that go against uh, other guitar players really don't apply to Randy. And I have met dudes that don't get it, that are just like, you know what, man, I, I just, I don't understand why people love Randy Rhodes so much, or whatever. And that's fine. But when people's, even when people do want to criticize uh, Rhodes, they always start with, yeah, he was sick as fuck, but he only made two albums. Yeah, he was sick as fuck, but so-and-so is better. Yeah, he was sick as fuck, but... I can play his shit. Well, yeah, maybe now, in 2019, you can play his shit because fucking YouTube shows you how to fucking play it and whatever, but you can't play it like him. You cannot sound like Randy Rhodes. You. I'm talking to you, motherfucker. You cannot sound like Randy Rhodes. So, again, those... um all of those excuses or whatever you want to call it, all of those hating, just, I mean, to me, they just don't apply to Randy Rhodes. And and that's why, you know, I love the motherfucker. And um, that's why it was kind of hard to fucking finally say, okay, I'm going to do the fucking episode. But uh, here we are, and there's nowhere better to start than at the beginning. Um... Randy Rhodes was born December 6, 1956 in Santa Monica, California. His mother's Dolores Rhodes, otherwise known as D, who he wrote the song D for. He had a brother, Kelly, who was older, and a sister, Kathy, who was younger. And they uh, were tight, tight family, you know. Um, Kathy was one of Randy's best friends in life. And Kelly, his older brother, was also a rocker. And so he would be an influence on Randy musically and in a lot of other ways. His mother ran a music school. She was a uh, graduate of UCLA uh, music program and she was a piano teacher. And she opened a school called Musonia in North Hollywood. And Randy started taking lessons there at age six. It wasn't long before his guitar teacher went to his mother and said, I can't really teach Randy anymore. He already knows everything I know. And Randy also started taking piano lessons from his mom for music theory and to have, you know, classical knowledge of music, which he would later obviously put to great use. So he started taking lessons when he was six by the time he was 14, he had his first band called Violet Fox with his brother, Kelly Rhodes. That only lasted like five months. And after that, he started forming bands with his friend, Kelly Garney, from junior high school. The first band that they had was called the Catch and Jammer Kids, then Mildred Pierce, then The Whore, then Little Women. They were into Mountain and the Stones and Bowie and Alice Cooper. 
According to Kelly, Randy wasn't a very strong lead player at that time. He was still, you know, working on that. But in the next two years, he would pretty much get his beginning lead style down. And he would actually start giving lessons at his mother's school at age 16 and playing uh, gigs at night. So around the time that they turned 16, Kelly Garney and Randy were looking for a singer. And this dude, Kevin Dubrow, showed up and um, they didn't really like him. By all accounts, he was kind of a dick. And he had different influences. He liked like Mata Hoople and Rod Stewart. And they, so they didn't really see eye to eye musically. But what they did like about Kevin Dubrow was that he was um, ambitious. And he really, really, really wanted to be famous. Like even more than them. He was more driven than they were. And he had contacts in the business. So they were like, okay, we'll, we'll go ahead and sign this dude up. But it was never like, um, they were never like really a band of homies all on the same page, all going the same direction. They all had uh, personality conflicts, musical conflicts. They had a lot of conflicts. So anyways, they start playing in, uh, in L.A., and at some point, they changed their name to Quiet Riot. Now, the style of the band Quiet Riot is kind of like a power pop band. Like, they're very much like Slade or Sweet or Mata Hoople. Um, sing songy anthems. Uh, some heavy guitar, but not a lot of space for, you know, extended solos or anything like that. It was very poppy, you know, and they became huge in L.A., and Randy was the star of the band. Uh, he had his look down. He had, you know, these uh, polka dot vests that he would wear with a polka dot bow tie. And before long, he had that black polka dot guitar. He was really the star of the show, you know. And Kevin Dubrow was growing into a much better singer and a much better frontman Because at first, they didn't think he was very good at either one. But he got better, and they got better, and the band got big. And eventually, they got signed to do, uh, to do a first album. The deal kind of fucking fell through to where the album only came out in Japan. And they did a second album, which also only came out in Japan. But during that time... Uh, Kevin Dubrow and Kelly Garney really hated each other. It got to the point where Kelly Garney, who always liked playing with guns, he says he grew up in the ghetto, in the barrio, and there was always gunfire, so he wasn't, like, real shy about, you know, getting in fights or, or uh, firing off his gun. And so uh, Randy and um, Kelly were drunk, and uh, arguing about Kelly wanted to kick Kevin Dubrow out of the band. And Randy didn't. He was like, hello, we're making an album right now. You know, we can't, we can't fucking kick this dude out. So it got heated. They got into a fist fight. 
which according to Kelly Garney, they got in many, many, many fist fights and Randy was not afraid to fight. He was he was a dude that got into a lot of fights. And so they get into this fight and fucking Kelly Garney decides, you know what, man, fuck this. He goes and gets his gun. He fires off his gun in the house. And then he tells Randy, I'm going to go kill that motherfucker, Kevin, and I'm out. And so he takes off, and before he gets to the studio where he planned on killing Kevin, he gets stopped by the cops, and they find the gun, and he goes to jail, all drunk, driving with a gun. So, um, bottom line, instead of Kevin getting kicked out of the band, Kelly Garney gets kicked out of the band, and then they hire Rudy Sarzo to take Kelly Garney's spot on the bass. And Quiet Riot uh, keeps on getting bigger, but there's a ceiling on it because in L.A. during that time, rock was kind of dying, punk was coming up, disco's coming up, you know, a lot of things were, were, uh, were going on, and old rock bands were considered like dinosaurs, you know? So there was only like so much that they could go in that scene or that's the way they felt about it anyway. Now, if you listen to those first Quiet Riot albums, they're not really great. There's, uh, like I say, the, the direction is not very well defined. It seems like Randy wants to do one thing while Kevin wants to do another thing. And there's not a lot of space for like Randy to get loose or whatever. But the same was not true of their live show. While there's very little existing video of Randy playing, one of the things that's out there that I watched this week is a video of Quiet Riot live at the Whiskey in, I think it's 78 or something like that. And uh, Randy's stage persona is fully formed. You know, he's a star up there. And... uh like a lot of rock bands of the time, they sound a lot heavier live than they do in the studio. Same was true of Quiet Riot. The guitar was a lot louder on live. And there was a lot of places where Randy got to go off, especially during his Spotlight solo, which is really not that different from the Spotlight solo that he did um, with Ozzy. But he was still in the development stages. Like, it's a good thing that those Quiet Riot albums really didn't hit because Randy wasn't really ready. He wasn't done at that point. You know, he was like a cake that was three-quarters way cooked, I guess. And, um, you know, to hear Rudy Sarzo tell it, it's like when Hendrix was here and he was in bands and stuff, but nobody really knew who he was. And then he went to England and became Hendrix. And then he came back and then he was already like a whole new made dude, you know. And that's the same thing that happened with Randy. Now, the way that Randy was uh, discovered, so to speak, is that, you know, Ozzy got kicked out of Sabbath because he was uh, drunk and drug addict just like the rest of them but he was no longer willing to work and they were just like you know what man we we need this make this record uh even just 
so they could just keep on going with what they were doing, which was, you know, cocaine and everything else. And But in order to keep that going, they had to make the fucking record, and Ozzy wasn't fucking showing up. Uh, it wasn't going to happen. So they kick Ozzy out of the band. He goes on a fucking bender. Uh, the, you know, the people that are managing Ozzy and whatever just really don't give a fuck anymore. The management falls to uh, David uh, Arden, who is Sharon Arden's brother, who is now Sharon Osborne. So he gets uh, Ozzy. And he doesn't really know what to do with Ozzy, but he starts saying, well, first thing we need to do is start auditioning musicians. So they start auditioning musicians for a project that is supposed to be called The Blizzard of Oz. That's the name of the band. So somehow Ozzy knew of this bassist in L.A. named Dana Strum who was originally supposed to be the bassist in this band, Blizzard of Oz. Um, he didn't end up getting the gig, but before he didn't end up getting the gig, he told Ozzy about Randy and had Randy show up to audition. Now, Randy wasn't that excited, really, to audition because he never, like, really liked Black Sabbath. He didn't, you know, and therefore didn't really care to be in a band with Ozzy that was probably going to sound like Black Sabbath. So he was just like, nah, you know, whatever. But Dana Strom was like, dude, you got to do this. It's going to be a huge opportunity for you. La, la, la. So uh, Randy goes in auditions. And at this time, Randy's like, uh, he has a PV amp with a big old Ampeg speaker box. It's like very not top of the line shit. You know, he uh, he goes in there and he just blows fucking Ozzy's mind. Like to where Ozzy thought he was fucking hallucinating, which he very well might have been, you know, but so blown away that he was just like, this is the fucking guy I have to have. You know, this is after looking at a thousand guitar players and being turned down by Gary Moore and whatever. He decided that Randy was the dude. And when he made that decision, it was the greatest single decision that Ozzy ever made. Or Sharon or whoever the fuck made the actual decision. Um, so Randy joins the band. And... Uh, the rest of the band is rounded out with Bob Daisley and Lee Kerslake, who are veteran musicians and been in a million bands. And Lee Kerslake uh, was also a singer, so he ended up coming along, coming up with a lot of the melody lines that made it for the first two albums. And Bob Daisley was a lyric writer, so he came up with the most of the lyrics that are on those albums and Randy was of course a composer and so he comes up with the music that is on those first two albums and to say that Randy hit his stride when he joined Ozzy is an understatement I think that what style Ozzy was gonna be was undetermined so that like left a lot of space for Randy to uh, 
to be free, you know, and to and to do what he thought was sick. And obviously, what he thought was sick was some shit that had never been heard before. Uh, this shit was heavy, but it made use of um, classical type chord structures that you didn't see in hard rock. The solos were um, very outside the box from what you heard at that time. Intros were different from what you heard at that time. Every single thing about that first Blizzard of Oz album is not like anything else. And I think part of it was the whole Randy coming from one thing to to try to do another thing and Ozzy coming from what he was doing and trying to do something different is all he knew he wanted to do. And then Bob Daisley coming in and writing the lyrics that were basically, okay, Ozzy, what do you want to do on this one? Well, I don't know. Let's call it, uh, I don't know. And so here's fucking Bob Daisley writing lyrics fucking about, I don't know. So, you know, and then going, okay, Randy, what, what do you got for this? And, and then everybody just, it was a perfect storm. It was a perfect storm. And they were recording in this barn in England. And it just so happens that the dude that they got to produce the record didn't work out. And they ended up just going with the house engineer that worked in this fucking barn studio whose name is Max Norman. Now, the reason that that's important is because Max Norman was a youngster. He didn't know, like, the rules of the, of the studio. So when Randy suggested this or Randy suggested that, Max Norman was just like, yeah, let's do it. So Randy's like, I want to triple track my solos, which means that he wanted to record his solos three separate times the same solo and then mix it together pan it left right and middle to thicken it up and that's what they ended up doing now any old producer at that time martin birch or whoever else you might have got would have just said oh no no randy don't be silly i'll i'll put you loud enough we'll be able to hear you don't worry about it and just left it at that but this young producer didn't know no fucking better he wanted to please Ozzy. He wanted to please Randy. And he was just like, okay, let's do it. And that's part of what gives you the sound that would later on be, you know, the sound of Randy Rhodes. Speaking of the sound of Randy, we have to get into um, the equipment that he used, obviously. While he was in Quiet Riot, his main guitar for the first few years was a cream-colored 72 Les Paul Custom, which is, you know, a very standard hard rock guitar. He played that thing with Quiet Riot for many years, and then he wanted to get something custom. His look was already that of the polka dots and the polka dot bow ties and all that stuff. So he wanted a polka dot guitar. He knew a guy named Kurt Sandoval who had worked with Grover Jackson and Wayne Charvel and those guys who were getting started in the guitar making business in L.A. And so he went to uh, Kurt with uh, hand drawings of 
of this polka dot flying V that he wanted, which was a, a flying V with a tremolo, which was rare at that time. Gibson flying V's didn't have tremolos, and I think they were the only ones making flying V's at the time. So here comes Randy with these drawings and whatever. And so this dude, Kurt Sandoval, gets to building this guitar. It's built around a Dan Electro neck, which is weird to me because I know that Dan Electro made particularly nice necks or anything like that. I had never heard that. So it was weird to me, but I guess it was a heavily modified neck anyway. But uh, yeah, they took this neck, they built this V around it, basically, and it is that um, that custom polka dot flying V that Randy, you always see Randy with in, in all the pictures and everything. This uh, guitar had a tremolo on it, which was a Strats style tremolo, which was all that there was basically at that time besides a Bigsby. So it had a Strat style tremolo and it had DiMarzio PAF pickups in it which is quite an advancement at that time. This is like uh, 77. So, you know, he's got a very modern guitar sounding guitar at that time. And so he, um, he gets this V and that becomes his main guitar throughout the time with Ozzy. And it's the guitar that all of uh, Diary of Madman and blizzard of oz are recorded on are recorded with besides some parts that he used the les paul but it's mostly the v with touches of the les paul here and there now when randy was in quiet riot his main uh amp was a pv amp with an ampeg uh speaker box and he had that amp through the whole audition process and through uh, the early jam sessions with Ozzy, but once he got in the band, they were like, you know, new equipment was made available to him. He ended up with two white Marshall stacks, and those would be his amps going forward. His pedal board was pretty much the same. It was a very basic pedal board that centers around a uh, MXR Distortion Plus, which was a very popular pedal at that time and is still an excellent distortion pedal. And everything else was basically just built around that and it's nothing special, nothing, um, nothing out of control. Also during that time, you know, Randy got a little bit of money, so he also had a couple of more guitar ideas for guitars that he wanted to get made. Uh, so he went to Grover Jackson, who by that time had bought Charvel guitars and was making a go of, of, uh, of the Charvel thing. And he went to Grover Jackson with these ideas for a guitar that he wanted, which was like an offset V type of a shape, which was not what Charvel was doing. But... You know, obviously, Grover Jackson could make this guitar and set to work on making it. He ended up making four prototypes, two that Randy would get and use, and two that Randy would never see. And these were the highest quality guitars that Randy would ever have. They were hand-built by Grover Jackson. They had all brass hardware. 
They had Seymour Duncan pickups, a Jazz in the front position, and a Super Distortion in the rear position. And, I mean, everything was super top-notch. Now, since the guitar was going to be widely different from anything that Charvel had made before, and since Charvel was like one of the top new brands in guitar... Uh, Grover Jackson decided he didn't want to put Charvel on these guitars just in case it was a flop or whatever. People didn't dig it. So he was like, I'm just going to call these Jacksons. And that was the birth of Jackson Guitars, who to this day is one of the um, biggest manufacturer of heavy metal guitars in the world. And you see the Rhodes model every day. I have one right there. I can see it. It's right there. So not only was Randy an innovator as far as guitar playing and guitar sounds, he was also an innovator as far as guitar designs. Anyways, so they make those two records, Blizzard of Oz and Diary. And shortly after that, the rest of the band besides Randy is fired they get Tommy Aldridge and Rudy Sarzo to replace them. And they're now informed that this is no longer going to be a band called Blizzard of Oz. This is going to be Ozzy Osbourne. And uh, the album is going to be called Blizzard of Oz. And you're just basically a side guy, Randy. You're not a full member of this band and neither is anyone else. Uh, this is just Ozzy, and you guys are his band. Randy wasn't too happy with this by all accounts. Um, Rudy and Tommy didn't give a fuck. They were hired as sidemen, but Randy was hired as a full member of the band, just like Bob Daisley and Lee Kerslake thought that they were, and so they were all pissed. Them two on their way out the door were pissed and Randy still in the band was pissed. So that's why there's a lot of, um, you know, rumors and innuendos and things that say that Randy was going to leave the band after the next record. Some people say he was, some people say he wasn't. Some people say he wanted to take a hiatus and go back to school to get his degree in classical guitar. A lot of things, and you never know. You know, he might have said this to this person and this to a different person. His family doesn't believe that he was going to leave the band, but other people do. So, you know, we'll never know what the future may have been. But for the time, Randy was in the band. They released the first album. They went back to the studio to make the second album before they even hit the road. Once the second album was recorded, Lee Kerslake and Bob Daisley were kicked out of the band, and then the band went on tour. And these shows were legendary. The band was on hit. Randy was nuts. He was a different guitar player than anybody had seen before. Randy's range of influences was wide. He liked Leslie West. He liked Blackmore. He liked Michael Schenker. He liked Gary Moore. He liked Charlie Christian, who was a blues player. He liked John Williams, who was a classical player. But the dude who stands out the most as to 
who Randy must have really liked the most is Mick Ronson, who was the guitarist for David Bowie. Now, I didn't know who Mick Ronson was uh, until I read about him in articles about Randy. So I went back and looked to see who he was. And there's a very good documentary called Besides Bowie, the Mick Ronson story. I'd suggest you check that out. Anyway, in watching that, I was just like, oh, wow. This dude, Randy, just like, must have loved this dude because he totally stole his look. He totally stole, like, his stance, the way he stands on stage. He, uh, his stage-like presence. Some a little bit of his style, but, you know... I think Randy was beyond the guitar player that Mick Ronson was, but you could still see, you know, signs of it. And you could see all of the influences in Randy. And some of the dudes that Randy liked, like Blackmore and Michael Schenker, they were already putting classical influences in their music. But with, um, with Blackmore, it was more like you know what, I'm going to throw in this little bit of an old classical song and just kind of make it like, kind of like a cool joke or whatever, you know. And with Schenker, there was a, there was some, some classical scales that he worked with. Just from being German, I think that your that classical music is more ever-present. Uh, so, so that leaked into his playing as well but nobody really ever purposed it the way that Randy did because what Randy did was he would contrast uh, classical scales with the blues scale and and mix them in the same solo he would take classical chords with power chords and mix them in the same song he would take uh a classical guitar and put it underneath a heavy track and you couldn't really hear it but you know it's there because it's it's underneath it's like an essence so uh, Randy was the first one I think to combine classical into heavy metal in an organic way not by force not by um, by oh wouldn't it be cute if I stuck some Bach in right here no it was just a natural music that was inside of Randy mixed with the other music that was inside of Randy that came out to be Randy's music speaking of Randy's music I'm actually going to play some for you now some of his solos that he did that are amongst my favorites and I'm going to break them down and kind of tell you what he's doing and why. And I'm going to be using some terms that you may or may not know. Uh, a motif is just a theme. Staccato means very choppy playing. Like dun 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 dun. Each note starts and stops. Whereas legato means fluid playing. Where each note just goes right into the next one. I'm going to talk about pull-offs and hammer-ons and tapping and palm muting and scales and technical things like this. So if you don't know what these things are, you want to look them up real quick ahead of time, go for it. Or if not, just 
check it out. It should really speak for itself. Here's an analysis of some of Randy's best solos. Okay, now we're going to look at some solos. And the first solo I want to look at is the Crazy Train solo. What Randy does on this one is he grabs you at the beginning with some flash. He does some two-handed tapping techniques, popularized by Eddie Van Halen, of course, but Randy does it different. And then he's going to slow it down with some singing melodic notes to both establish the tonality of the solo and to give you a contrast with the fast playing that surrounds it. Then once he establishes that, he does some rapid fire repeating phrases that end with a fast palm muted sequence that ends in a killer band giving it a climax. This is a perfectly constructed solo. So first we have the tapping, which um, obviously was popularized by Eddie Van Halen. A lot of people think he invented it. He didn't. I have a video of Ace Freely doing it in like 75. And um, there were gypsy dudes and jazz dudes doing it way before that. But um, Eddie did make it popular. And Randy also did it. But Randy did it different than Eddie did it. Eddie would use his finger to tap the notes, whereas Randy would use a pick. Um, Eddie would do straight triplets, three repeating notes, whereas Randy would do six notes before repeating. Um, and in this one, Randy also bends a note like crazy while he's also still tapping, which gives it an interesting effect that I had never heard before. And that goes a little something like this. Then Randy gives you two sets of slow singing melodic notes that reestablish the tonality of the solo and also give you contrast because the rest of the solo is fast. So this little slow part lets you know just how fast it is. Then he speeds up again with a descending fast lick that uses hammers and trills again to give you contrast. Then he gives you a rapid fire repeating pattern to reestablish the shreddiness. And he finishes with an ascending lick that covers all six strings with palm muting to separate the staccato from the legato and a high bent note to give you a climax at the end. Bad fucking solo. You gotta listen to my words. Yeah. 
Okay, the next one I want to talk about is the Flying High Again solo, which is another great solo. In this one, Randy starts with this rapid fire repeating pentatonic lick. Pentatonic means it's the blues scale. It's just a regular old scale that people have used for rock forever. Then he goes into a descending lick that covers five strings. Then it goes into a melodic ascending lick that goes into another ascending lick that ends with a trill. The ascending lick uses palm muting on the lower strings for the staccato. That's that dun 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 sound. Then once again for contrast, he goes into some super fast hammer licks that are super legato and ends with a tapping sequence that are six notes per string across five strings, which is super rare. Nobody really did that before uh, Randy did it. And it goes like this. So the first part is a repeating pentatonic lick that people have played forever. So it just goes to show that sometimes it's not what you play, but how you play it. The rest of the lick is a very legato lick that ends in such a way that you know it has concluded. Always look for, look for that in Randy's playing. He'll leave something up in the air, but then he'll always resolve it. Almost as if he asks himself a question and then gives himself a very satisfying answer. This next part starts with a palm muted ascending piece that ends with some crazy trills that is two notes that are hammered and pulled in quick succession. These are techniques that are very popular now but not so much in 1982. The solo ends with some more tapping but while most tapping of that day was done on a single string this sequence goes across five strings, which was very unique at the time and a crazy way to end a crazy solo. So here goes the whole thing again. Alright, and this next one is one of my absolute favorite solos of all time, and it's the solo to Over the Mountain. 
it starts once again with a very slow three note motif that establishes the tonality of the solo and contrasts with the speed that's coming in the descending lick that signature Randy and one of my favorite licks of all time. Then he breaks into some crazy tremolo and open string pull-off licks that are licks that are on paper they're easy to do. Anyone could do them, but no one could do them like Randy. Then he goes into some call and response techniques with himself and the solo ends with a crazy pick slide sound that you can only get with a tube amp that's cranked all the way and just about ready to feed back at any moment. Now, if that solo doesn't tell you everything you need to know about Randy Rhodes, then I don't know what the fuck to tell you, because that was it. It's all right there. Now, the way this thing begins is, again, with the three-note motif that shows you the direction and the tone that this is going to go. It's also kind of cool that the notes that he chose are like the same intervals as the song Black Sabbath, the devil's note, and all that. This next part is one of the most randiest of Randy phrases of all time, played in only a way that Randy could play it. Even to this day, dudes who have to cover these songs don't come close to expressing it the way that Randy did. On this next part, Randy gets loose with the tremolo, with the open string hammer-ons, and just goes nuts for a minute, and it's awesome. Now here comes the climax of the solo and for this part all of the other music is taken out. So Randy's kind of playing a cappella at this point and it's perfect because you really need to hear every fucking note of this fucking sequence. And there it is, my favorite guitarist of all time, Mr. Fucking Randy Rhodes, doing this motherfucking thing.
So that's it for the solo analysis part. Now back to the rest of the story. So I hope you dug that shit. That was hard to record both technically because I'm not really good at this editing shit. And it was hard for me because like, you know, I don't know, man. I get fucking, I get worked up talking about, you know, talking about this shit, talking about the, the shit that Randy did because it had such a huge impact on me. And that's what people say who got to see him live. I never got to see him live. I was too young. But uh, the people that did get to see him on those two tours were heavily impacted by, by Randy. And it was a lot of people that actually got to see him live that were like, man, I'm gonna, I want to learn to play guitar now because of that fucking guy. Some of the dudes who felt like that about Randy were like Dimebag, Zach Wilde, John Petrucci, Paul Gilbert, Buckethead, Alexi Laiho. There's a bunch of dudes. Basically, every modern heavy metal player was influenced by Randy Rhodes in one way or another. There's really no one who wasn't. And even if you're a young kid right now learning to play guitar and you want to play heavy metal... Randy Rhodes is on your list of shit that you need to know about. Even contemporaries of Randy have glowing shit to say about Randy. Steve Vai loves Randy. Gary Moore loves Randy. Even Ingve, who really doesn't have much great to say about anybody, has great shit to say about Randy. The only dude who really didn't have very many good things to say about Randy was Eddie Van Halen. But that's because, you know, they were already rivals in L.A. You know, they, they knew each other. They didn't really like each other. The three hottest guitarists in L.A. were Eddie, Randy, and George Lynch. And, you know, they would, they would see each other around, you know. There's stories that Randy was devastated the first time he saw Eddie. There's stories that Eddie was devastated the first time he saw Randy. You know, who knows, um... There's always that story about how uh, Randy didn't like Eddie because he one time, you know, he noticed that Eddie could stay in tune really good, even using like an old Strat tremolo. And so he asked Eddie how he did it. And Eddie basically told him, oh, yeah, bro, Jeff Beck told me how to do it. But I can't tell you because, you know, that's my shit or whatever. So Randy was like, what the fuck? What's up with this fucking guy? You know, because Randy was a guitar teacher. So... It made sense to him that, you know, that somebody would tell him, you know, help him out with something. But Eddie didn't want to do that. I think Eddie was more competitive with it than Randy was. But they were definitely competitors. And unfortunately, you know, when you talk about hard rock guitar, there's like phases and there's definite, you know, points of historical points. Like, you know... There's Hendrix, and then there's everyone who came after Hendrix. And then there's Eddie, and then there's everyone who came after Eddie. And then there's Ingve, and then there's everyone who came after Ingve. So, unfortunately, Randy falls into that post-Eddie and kind of gets lost in, you know, the Eddie worship of the time. But, in reality, he was a contemporary of Eddie's, and they were, you know very on a very similar course from before we knew who they were so you know while historically randy will never get 
the universal love that Eddie gets. He does get love from guitarists, from metal fans, and from anyone who wants to someday be a heavy metal guitar player. And that's how it was for me. I mean, like... I saw a video of, of a KISS concert when I was really little, like eight or nine, and I fucking dug Ace Freely. I thought he was the coolest motherfucker i ever seen, and you know, and yeah, I wanted to play guitar and whatever, and that interest faded, you know. At some point, I decided I wanted to play drums, and I asked my parents for a drum set, but we were broke, so of course I didn't get a drum set, and I got an acoustic guitar instead which ended up sitting in my closet forever, you know. Well, guess what? When I heard Randy, that guitar came out of the closet, you know. And, uh, of course, I couldn't play any Randy shit. But, you know, I started with the Smoke on the Waters and the Iron Mans and whatever. And it was because of Randy, you know. Um, then I went to Spain and all of us were Randy fanatics over there and we had an actual guitar class that we could go to and try to learn Randy stuff instead of the little classical songs that they were trying to teach us. But um, yeah, that tour and even though hardly any video exists of it uh, and one album exists of it, the tribute album, it is just legendary. You know, and it's part, I think part of you not being able to see it, not being able to hear it is part of what builds the legend of Randy Rhodes uh, is that so much of it's a fucking mystery. You know, Um, what would he have done if he stayed alive? What, you know, uh, what would have been next? You know, was he going to quit the band? Was he going to come out with a solo album? Was he going to fucking go harder than ever? Was he going to be classical instead? You know, was he going to go back to Quiet Riot? You know, what the fuck was going to happen? We n- we'll never know, you know. And and all of those questions are part of the legend, you know. And when somebody dies before they were supposed to, that's what happens, you know. That's why Randy's Randy and Bruce Lee is Bruce Lee and Jimi Hendrix is Jimi Hendrix. And, you know, because there's so much uh, possibility of what could have happened next and because they were never lame. You know, they never they didn't stay around long enough to do some whack ass shit or whatever. Everything that they did was fucking tits. So, you know, obviously we want to think that the next thing was going to be even greater. You know, would it have been? I don't know. Uh, I can only imagine how, at what level Randy was playing at after being on two consecutive world tours in a row. I imagine he was playing better at the time of his death than he had ever played before. Speaking of his death... Um, it was a stupid, stupid fucking thing. Uh, they had this coked out bus driver who was also a pilot. And, um, there was some problem with the bus. So they had to take it back to like this bus depot thing 
that the company owned and they also had planes there that they would lease so you know everybody's kind of crashed out on the bus and whoever's awake this pilot dude is like taking them on little fucking flights up in the air and down just up and down you know uh just to go up in a plane you know or whatever by all accounts randy was he didn't like flying so it didn't seem like something that he would do uh other dudes had already said no they were gonna just sleep on the bus or kick it just wait but randy and a seamstress named rachel youngblood who up until the other day when i actually saw a picture of her i had no idea she was a black lady for whatever reason i thought she was an old white english lady because she was working for sharon osborne and it just it made sense but um they said yeah they went up in the plane with this fucking coked out pilot and he thought it would be funny to buzz the the tour bus and so he did and i guess he didn't get the desired result so he buzzed it again and this time got a little closer and then he buzzed it again and then this time he clipped it and as he clipped the bus obviously it fucking rocked the bus and woke up everybody that was on the bus but it then careened off and uh, plowed into a, into a house. And so basically the plane is inside the house and everything's on fire. So, you know, I mean, you could hope and wish that, you know, they died on impact. But it's very likely that they burned to death inside that that plane, inside that house. And everyone died that was on board. And uh, and the band woke up to to a fireball in in a house and and fucking, you know, and screams. And uh, and that was March 19th, 1982. And uh, that was the day that Randy died. Um, he was 25. I was 13. And I was devastated. And um, he was my favorite guitarist at that time. And so he just remained my favorite guitarist. And no one ever took that spot. So, uh, yeah, that's that's why. That's why he's my favorite guitarist of all time. Um, because he just, he was on that day and nothing's changed since that day I mean you know Ingve came along and that was great you know and and he's been one of my dudes since that time and you know Vivian Campbell came along and that was great and, but were they better than Randy nah nah not to me um no one is no one is. But if you really want to know why, I mean, the answer is there. It's in the music, you know. 
And so you have homework for this episode. And that is to uh, put on a pair of headphones and then just throw on Blizzard. Then throw on Diary. And then throw on Tribute. And if, uh, if you're not a Randy fan after that, well, you know, hey, I, I, uh, I tried to sell you as best I could, and, uh, and I guess it, it's just not for you. <laughs> but listen to that shit with headphones on, you know, listen for the devices that Randy uses, listen for the contrasts. Randy's style is a study in contrast, the contrast of melody and dissonance, the contrast of feeling and technical ability, the contrast of clean sounds and distortion, the contrast of restraint and speed, of lightness and darkness, of lightness and heaviness. It's all there. And that's the, um, that's the mark of any great composer, of any great musician of uh, any great artist and uh, it's definitely there for Randy and so there we are I don't want to make this too long uh, you know I could probably do 10 of these and I might you know <laughs> I might do another one I might do two more you know uh, if I think of some more shit that I mean I know as soon as I hit uh, stop on this button I'm going to think of 20 more things that I should have fucking said. And and there will always be more things to say. Um, you know, uh, I love that dude, man. And, uh, you know, I actually, uh, he's buried in San Bernardino. He has a really nice mausoleum there that Ozzy bought. And... Um, and I've been there. It's it's uh, awesome. Lonnie took me up there. Um, I should have brought Lonnie up a long time ago. She's um, become a huge Randy fan, you know, because of me, obviously. And that's how his legacy stays alive, you know, through uh, through word of mouth and through you know just huge fans making other people become huge fans. And that's what really has happened, you know, with Lonnie. She loves Randy. Her favorite solo is Mr. Crowley. She'll probably wonder why I didn't cover that one. And maybe I'll have to break that one down at a future time. But, um, yeah, you know, with me and her, we've gone to these concerts that they have every year called Randy Rhodes Remembered. His family puts them on and uh, all kinds of dudes, you know, take part in it. All kinds of guitar players, you know, Jeff Watson's there, um, Doug Aldridge is there, all kinds of dudes. Um, Brian Titchy helps put it on, Bumblefoot's been on there, Sebastian Bach shows up, and it's basically just a bunch of dudes, and they cover all the songs that Randy ever did, pretty much. And so you've got all these guitar players putting their take on Randy shit. And just keeping it in the public consciousness, you know, and that's how the legend of Randy grows and continues, you know. And so, like I said, Lonnie became a huge fan. And so she took me up there to the gravesite. And, you know, we did like a 
photo shoot of me holding my roads in front of the mausoleum and it was cool it was super cool she tied a little uh, polka dot ribbon around the little guardrail that you know guards the mausoleum and you know who knows it's maybe it's still there I want to go back uh, I was drunk at the time that I went and I was you know drunk throughout of many of that those years and so I I would like to go back sober and um, and feel it more uh, that's gonna be great I look forward to it and I look forward to the next episode of the uh, hit the light podcast when I don't know what we'll be talking about yet but it's gonna be great and I hope you like this one like I said it was kind of hard to make and uh, but I'm already ready to do it again so you know what can I tell you long live Randy Rhodes <laughs>